It was 8.15 a.m. on February 10th, 1947, a sleepy Monday morning in West Los Angeles. H.C. Shelby, a 42-year-old bulldozer operator, was on his way to a job site, one of the endless housing tracks springing up in the post-war boom. Just off Grandview Boulevard, on an isolated, weedy stretch of land nicknamed the Moors, Shelby noticed a pile of stylish women's clothing. He went to investigate, and he found the naked body of a dark-haired woman, face up beneath a dew-covered red dress and blue coat with fox fur cuffs. According to a police report, her body was completely covered with bruises, blood, and mud. The face had been apparently beaten to a pulp. Fuck you, BD, was written on the victim's torso with her own vividly hued red lipstick. Just below were the letters T-E-X. She had been stomped and beaten so violently that she had suffered massive internal bleeding, a broken neck, and a punctured heart. The mutilated victim found that dewy morning was quickly identified as a 44-year-old woman named Jean French. I'm Hadley Mears, and this is Underbelly L.A. Not surprisingly, Jean French's horrific death made front-page news and was quickly dubbed the lipstick murder. Werewolf strikes again, kills L.A. woman, writes B.D. on body, the Herald Express blared in a special edition the day French was found. The term werewolf killer was often used in news stories about various unsolved slayings of area women. From the very beginning, as the newspaper headline suggests, the mystery of French's murder played second fiddle to another gruesome killing. French's death was instantly tied to that of the Black Dahlia, a.k.a. Elizabeth Short, whose nude, bisected body had been found in an empty lot in Leimert Park only three weeks earlier. While Short's brief, tragic life and unsolved murder have captivated the popular imagination for decades— a cautionary noir tale of a pale, pretty red riding hood swallowed up by the Hollywood wolves. French's life has been reduced to little more than a footnote, despite its fascinating mix of triumph and tragedy. Jean Nettie Axford was born into a large family in Texas on October 6, 1902. At the age of 18, she married David Yandel Rather, often described as a wealthy oil man who owned several large farms. That same year, she gave birth to David Jr., her only child. The couple settled in Amarillo, where Jean worked as a nurse at St. Anthony's Hospital. But the marriage was short-lived, and in 1924, the young couple divorced. The pretty, restless divorcee soon moved to Los Angeles with her son and continued to work as a nurse. In 1925, she married a man named David Thomas in Long Beach, but they also divorced soon after. 
Over the next few years, Jean lived an adventurous, unconventional life. According to syndicated news reports, she was put in charge of a band of nurses employed by a large oil company in Central and South America. Flying over jungles from oil field to oil field, she soon became absolutely captivated by the skies and she learned to fly herself. She was a member of the Women's Air Reserve and the 99 Club, an organization of pioneering women aviators. By 1931, the flying nurse was gaining notoriety. One story, syndicated nationwide, featured a photograph of a beaming jean in a form-fitting aviatrix uniform. The article read in part, Maybe patients won't want to get well when Miss Jean Axford Thomas of Dallas, Texas returns to Columbia as a nurse. After flying over jungles in her professional capacity a few years ago, she quit nursing to study aviation. Now she is trying for a mechanics license in Dallas and will then fly back to Columbia. Jean's love of flying consumed her personal life as well. In October of 1931, she married a fellow aviator named Curtis Bauer in Dallas. The couple separated only five weeks later. In February 1932, Jean again made national news when she became the first person in Southern California to attempt to obtain a divorce by airmail from the liberal Mexican courts. That summer, her story hit the wires again when she was reported missing by her mother. Mrs. Jean Axford Thomas, Los Angeles aviatrix, was reported missing today from Mexico City by her mother, Mrs. Oma Randall, who told authorities her daughter intended to fly from Mexicali to the Mexican capital the latter part of June. Mrs. Randall said Mrs. Thomas left Los Angeles June 27th, traveling by automobile with two Mexican flyers whose names she did not know. She said she has received no word from the aviatrix and asked police to aid in the search. Jean soon sent word to the United Press by a cablegram that she was safe and okay in Mexico City. I can't understand the worry I've caused in the United States by flying to Mexico, she said, frustration evident in her words. I'm flying back for the Olympics. The 1932 Olympics, by the way, were the first to be hosted by Los Angeles. Over the next decade, it's unclear exactly what Jean was up to. It has been reported that she worked as a nurse, as a stewardess, and for the Red Cross, and that she continued to fly. It has also been written that she acted in bit parts in films, and that she traveled the world as part of the international set in Paris, London, and New York with her friend, fashion icon and standard oil heiress, Millicent Rogers. But these accounts are difficult to corroborate or source. What is certain is that by 1947, these glory days had long since passed. Newly separated from her fourth husband of two years, aircraft plant employee Frank F. French, Jean lived in a small apartment at 3535 Military Avenue in Palms, a neighborhood in West Los Angeles. The apartment was little more than a mile from where her broken body would eventually be found. She seems to have succumbed to a drinking problem and had accused Frank of beating her on January 26, 1947, during a drunken brawl.
The last hours of Jean's life were a confusing, baffling tangle. At around 7.30 p.m. on Sunday, February 9th, she had dinner and drinks at the Plantation Cafe on Washington Boulevard. She was there with two men, one of whom waitress Christine Studnika described as having dark hair and a small mustache. While the men ordered food, Jean went to the payphone, apparently already intoxicated. Jean's autopsy reported her blood alcohol level as 0.31%. At that time, a person was considered intoxicated at only 0.15%. According to author and former LAPD detective Steve Hodell, during the phone call, Studnika said people nearby could hear French bark into the receiver in a very loud voice. Don't bring a bottle. The landlady doesn't allow it. While still on the phone, the victim yelled to the two men in her booth, Don't put any liquor in the car, and don't take any liquor. Studnika observed that the two men appeared to be arguing between themselves, and it was her impression that they were arguing over which one was going to accompany the victim. Roy J. Fetcher, the operator of a drive-in cafe on Santa Monica Boulevard, reported that Jean came into his establishment around 9.30 p.m. alone. She drank a cup of coffee with Fetcher and told him her woes. She said her husband was sadistic. She said he liked dark things. And she said he had beaten her several times, he reported. Then she raised a pair of dark glasses she was wearing to show me a couple of black eyes she said he had given her. At 10.30 p.m., Jean appeared in a Venice Boulevard bar. There, she announced she was committing her husband to the neuropsychiatric ward at the Saltel Veterans Hospital the following day. Jean then went to visit her estranged husband at his rooming house in Santa Monica. Frank claimed that she had tried to convince him to go out with her before hitting him on the head with a handbag. She was mean when she'd been drinking, Frank told police. She had been drinking Sunday night, but did not appear intoxicated. Sometime after midnight, Jean was at the Piccadilly Drive-In on Washington Place. She was there with a medium-small, dark-complexioned man who bragged about the large tip he gave their waitress. She put 25 cents in the kitty and asked pianist Sam Young to play for her. At 2 a.m., the bar closed, and the bartender noticed Jean and her friend fighting. Young went outside just in time to see Jean and her companion get in a beat-up old sedan. He was the last person, besides her killer or killers, to see her alive. The crime was an immediate, high-profile event, covered by all six of the local newspapers, Steve Hodell says. The murder scene's similarity to the Black Dahlias was immediately recognized, according to the L.A. Times. Written with her own lipstick in huge letters across the front of the torso were the letters B.D. Police surmised they might have been scrawled there as a false sign pointing to the killing as the work of the slayer of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, whose bisected torso was found January 15th in a vacant lot on Norton Avenue. 
also written with lipstick, but in smaller letters, were two obscene words. Two obscene words, in case you're curious, was the LA Times way of saying, fuck you. As the article attests, the LAPD was unwilling to publicly link the murders to one identified on the loose serial killer, choosing to see it, at least publicly, as a copycat clue. They instead focused on Frank French, Jean's tall and taciturn husband, who may have been suffering from PTSD after years in the Marine Corps, including a stint as a gunnery sergeant in World War II. Brought in for questioning, French initially denied having seen Jean the night before at all. When he finally did admit to having been visited by her, he emphatically denied hurting her, claiming he wouldn't have harmed a hair on her head. Jean's son, David Rather, now a 25-year-old father living in Redondo Beach, was also questioned. When he ran into his stepfather at the police station, the two men had a curious conversation, reported breathlessly by the LA Times. Well, I've told them the truth, Rather said. If you're guilty, there's a God in heaven who will take care of you. I swear to God I didn't kill her, French stated emphatically. There's a time this afternoon when if I had seen you, I can't say what might have happened. You know I loved Mom very much, Rather said. I loved her too, French replied. Later, David would confuse matters more with a statement that seemed to exonerate his stepfather. She made friends easy, awful easy. She went out alone sometimes. She's gone now, and I'm sure she would want me to say the right thing. She made a lot of her own trouble, her husband tolerated a lot from her. He was a tolerant man, a very tolerant man. French passed a lie detector test and was soon dropped as a suspect. We thought we had this one wrapped up at the start, said one homicide officer. Now we are just as far from a solution to this one as we are from the Black Dahlia. Some police officers, including LAPD homicide captain Jack Donahoe, also started publicly admitting that they believed the Elizabeth Short and Jean French murders were committed by the same man. 1947 was proving to be a very dangerous year for L.A. women. On March 12th, Evelyn Winters, a graduate of Vassar who was addicted to liquor, was found on a riverbank in Norwalk, there was electric wire and a dressing gown tied around her neck. With these three brutal, unsolved murders in as many months, Angelinos were convinced that a maniac killer was on the loose and that he would likely strike again, Steve Hodell says. On March 14th, the L.A. Examiner and other members of the press published 11 Points of Similarity, a fascinating document written by members of the LAPD informing the public that they believed that the three women had all been murdered by the same killer. Their reasons were as follows. 1. All three girls frequented cocktail bars, where they sometimes picked up men. 2. All three were slugged on the head. 3. All were killed elsewhere and taken in cars to the spots where the bodies were found. 4. All three were displayed nude, or nearly so. 5. In no case was an attempt made to conceal the body. On the contrary, bodies were left where they were sure to be found. 6. 
Each had been dragged a short distance. 7. Each killed was a pathological case, apparently motiveless. 8. In each case, the killer appears to have taken care not to be seen in the company of the victim. 9. All three women had good family backgrounds. 10. Each was identified by her fingerprints, other evidence of identity having been removed. 11. Miss Short and Miss Winters were last seen in the same Hill Street area. But no suspect was ever publicly identified, and investigators were unable to identify and locate vital witnesses and suspects, including the two male friends Jean had been seen with on her final night out. So who killed Jean? Steve Hodell believes the killer was his father, Dr. George Hodell. In Black Dahlia Avenger, a genius for murder, subsequent books and podcasts and interviews, he lays out a detailed and convincing argument. George Hodell was a suave and sadistic doctor who counted among his friends the artist Man Ray and director John Huston. Hodell believes that Elizabeth and Jean were two of nine lone women murders who were killed by his father during the late 1940s in Los Angeles. He also thinks Evelyn Winters is one as well. Dr. George Hodell was investigated by police, but never charged in any murder. However, Steve Hodell believes his father matches the description of the mysterious man seen with Jean the night of her death. A handwriting expert has found that it is highly probable that the lipstick letters were written by Dr. Hodell. And that message, fuck you, BD, Hodell believes it was a response to a newspaper ploy to get the man who had been writing the letters to local newspapers claiming to be the killer and signing those letters Black Dahlia Avenger. George Hodell's message was a direct response to a ploy initiated by newspapers to get the Black Dahlia killer to turn himself into police, Steve Hodell suggests. The ploy, suggested by Steve Fisher, writer of pulp fiction and noir screenplays, was published in the newspaper two days before the crime, that is, Jean French's murder. Fisher, in writing his article for the newspaper, suggested that the press publish a headline claiming the case was solved and the killer had confessed. Fisher believed that publishing the false confession would so upset the real killer that he would turn himself in rather than allow someone else to take credit for his crime. Incredibly, the Herald Examiner newspaper followed Fisher's advice and published an extra in six-inch print that read, Corporal Dumay is Black Dahlia Killer, identifies marks on girl's body in long confession. The reason for Jean French's murder was nothing more than a message on a body, Steve Hodell explained. A macabre response, instigated by a naive and thoughtless Hollywood crime writer's suggestion on how he thought a fictional Raymond Chandler sleuth would catch a killer. Her sadistic murder was tragic and senseless. She was simply a pawn in George Hodell's cat-and-mouse game with the police and the press. But others do not believe that George Hodell killed French. In her popular 1947 project blog, historian Kim Cooper lays out her theories regarding the crime. She points to the coroner's report, which she says states that BD is actually smeared PD, perhaps for police department. She also points to the fact that text was written on Jean's body and theorizes that maybe someone from her past in Texas committed the murder as an act of revenge. Mm -hmm. 
What we do know is that in 1950, a grand jury, tasked with looking into the string of brutal, unsolved murders and disappearances of women in the 1940s, blasted the LAPD, charging that corruption had tainted the investigation of a long series of violent sex slayings. According to the LA Times, because of the nature of these sex crimes, the jury said women and children are constantly placed in jeopardy and are not safe from attack. From its study of evidence in various cases, the jurors decided something is radically wrong with the present system for apprehending the guilty and said that the alarming increase in the number of unsolved murders and other major crimes reflects ineffectiveness in law enforcement agencies and the courts and should not be tolerated. In the report, the grand jury focused upon deplorable conditions indicating corrupt practices and misconduct by some members of the law enforcement agencies of this county. In April of that year, Jean's case was reopened and police said they had a hot suspect. They also admitted that the initial investigation had been considerably below standard. However, no charges came from this reopened investigation. Jean's murder remains unsolved, another tragedy for a woman whose life was so much more than her senseless, sensationalized death, now a mere footnote in the annals of L.A. Noir. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA at Underbelly LA. We're also on Facebook. Just search Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to UnderbellyLA.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Adley Mears. This episode is based on a story I wrote for the old LA Weekly. I would never write for the new LA Weekly. Check it out. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Underbelly LA. Join us next week as we take a tour of LA's original skid row, Hobo Corner. A Table Cakes production. <laughs>